0: the intersection of the numbers and the people side of things, which really was what human resources, especially compensation and benefits was doing at the time for me. The path is a very windy one and it's not linear and that's okay. And you'll be pleasantly surprised by the different things that you get to do if you're open to it, right? You don't always want everything so planned out as you go in life. It's refreshing and you meet. All sorts of different people in in those walks of life because you were open to doing that and doing something different and stepping outside of that path. The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearned Podcast. Where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly.
1: Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Annette Gabriel, a former senior director for human resources at PepsiCo and an enthusiast for leaders and teams. Adopting higher performance practices. I first met Annette when she was driving the culture change towards greater organizational team and individual agility at PepsiCo. She was responsible for developing their framework for agility in order to create greater clarity around gap assessments, identify solutions and levers to build capabilities, but leading globally their agile ways of working in a program called Responsive Working to transform better, faster, and more informed ways of working. I'm delighted to have her on the show. She's one of the people who just shines when you hear her stories about how herself, the path that she has gone from starting as an accountant to finding her way into HR and now leading global transformation and change initiatives. But before we get started, let's go back to the beginning and learn a little bit about how it started for her.
0: Well, before I graduated and thought I was just going to go be this great accountant and one of my last internships, prior to graduating, was doing uh, expatriate tax returns, and which doesn't sound all that exciting, <laughs> but that particular function in the company sat in human resources, and I started learning all about the personal side, right, of making sure assignments were successful and all the components of pay and all the that it had, and so I learned a lot about that, and really liked the corporate side versus being on the the auditing side in one of the big accounting houses and decided to change, right? And was offered a role to go do starting out expatriate compensation work, which really brought me over into a whole new career trajectory in human resources. And I really loved the intersection of the numbers and the people. Side of things, which really was what human resources, especially compensation and benefits, was doing at the time for me. So it was a neat transition. And I just never thought I would do all the different things that I was able to do. And I always, when I talk to young kids and college or, you know, when I'm mentoring folks, I just say, look, the path is a very windy one and it's not linear. And that's okay. And you'll be pleasantly surprised by the different things that you get to do if you're open to it, right? You don't always want everything so planned out as you go in life. It's refreshing and you meet all sorts of different people in in those walks of life because you were open to doing that and doing something different and stepping outside of that path.
1: Well, it's fascinating to me. You've worked for two of the largest companies in the world in Kraft and Pepsi, right? Like, you know, It doesn't really get any bigger in those. So you must have sort of had lots of fun, sort of little anecdotal experiences along the way of trying to figure out even yeah bringing these different skills together, like bringing numbers together with people, this sort of quantitative and sometimes qualitative side, obviously leading to you know what we'll talk about on, on some of the amazing work you've done on responsive working recently so. What were some of those little fun moments along the way where you were sort of going like, well, wow, or maybe this is totally the no wrong thing for me or, or the stuff that was like, actually, you know what, I found the right place for me. What were some of those signals?
0: Well, I view every role I've ever had, whether I really enjoyed it or not as a learning experience. And I said, even if it was just that I learned, that's not something I want to do. Right. But I always took with me an appreciation for the work that gets done in those spaces, even if it wasn't for me. For example, I ran PepsiCo's 401k program for a short period of time, and it was a really eye-opening and amazing experience for me to learn what goes on behind the scenes. And you should always appreciate your 401k plan owners because there's a lot of pressure and big costs to manage, and but huge positive things if you're doing the right things for the end user the, you know the consumer of that which are our employees and hopefully you know building a, a really robust retirement fund for future use so i appreciate and learned so much but i totally decided that's not what i want to do it wasn't for me and even on the compensation and benefits side of of working yeah i got to work with the numbers i was good with the numbers and i felt like i wanted to be the person who would be the advocate for the employee, which is why I like the HR side, the HR business partner side, where I'm the person now finding, no, how can we versus how can't we get this done? And so I liked being the fighter and the champion for the associates to make something work, to build something, to create, to be able to make movement happen and invest in talent. So that part really was what kind of changed really this trajectory to where I am now, where I just really love seeing the outcomes of putting the right talent in the right place and watching the magic happen when you see the cool things that they get to do.
1: I think that's really special, right? Like many people, you know, work their whole life to try and uh, have those types of experiences. But the thing that sort of strikes me as I'm listening to you, you know, even your career, you're talking about it as a learning experience. I'm going to try something and learn what I can from this and figure out if that's right for me or not, or change my course of direction as a result of that. Like that's almost like, you know, I often find this sort of agility mindset is sort of baked into certain types of people where it's almost intuitive or instinctive to you just to explore the world around you. And when you see things you like, try them, uh, know you either like it or you don't, and that's actually part of the process rather than I tried something and I, I wasn't good at it. That's a fail. It's I tried something, it wasn't for me. So now what's for me? How do I recalibrate? Like, that's a very sort of unique mindset, I think. I think if more people could sort of cultivate that, that they would try all sorts of different things. And especially in, in the work that many of us have to do now, right? There's a lot of uncertainty, even putting teams together, like the right mix of folks. You're obviously like designing programs for the executives in these like huge companies. So they get good learning experiences, become a higher performance team. So what were some of your sort of on learnings along the way about how to create even like those types of programs, like the best way for people to learn, like these high powered executives who they're massive ego driven people, they're talented people, they're all smart, how to get the best out of a team like that? Maybe what were some of the fun little mistakes you made along the way or things that you, you yes. would have do differently if you were going to do it again or what comes to mind?
0: Yeah, trying to do too much at once, I think, especially when you're trying to influence the leadership layer of the company. And in particular, when we were trying to deploy this Agile Ways of Working program called Responsive Working at PepsiCo, we kept going at the leadership layer with the same model that we were going to the kind of the quote-unquote consumer, which was our employees or general employee population. And it wasn't working because it was too complicated. It was too much. And we learned over time that the more we could simplify and not necessarily even teach them those exact methods, but more teach them the behavioral outcomes and the mindsets that we would get from them Enabling it with their team, so not necessarily asking them to go do, but enable give license to those teams to work differently, help block and tackle what's in the way for them and remove the noise and the distractions if possible, and give feedback right instead of making the decision for them, it's let them make decision, but weigh in and give them guidance and advice if they need it right it was going at it with too much upfront, which was something that, that we learned and we adjusted. And do I wish I had started out differently? I, I totally do. But But I was also learning. So that was the challenge. That's like a big learning for me. I was learning it while I was also trying to share it and develop it with others. And maybe I needed to take more time and also learn it deeply for myself first before I kind of went to that group.
1: Well, I just think this is like an absolute nugget, right? Because that's something I see a huge amount in organizations too as well, right? Like getting your CEO to sit down and put them through a scrum training and then tell them they're agile, this is how agile is done. It's so alien to them, right? It's not in their daily routine of how they operate, like the way that their work happens. Right. And that notion of trying to help them understand the principles and how they can actually get out of the way. It's so interesting. You're like, you know, the show for the final season of 2020 was with Stephen Lice, who's the VP of customer technology at American Airlines. And, you know, he was talking that one of the hardest lessons for the executive team and himself was to realize that they just needed to get out of people's way. You know, they needed to push more authority down to the frontline staff to make decisions faster instead of everything having to, you know, big companies, sign off, sign off, sign off layer, oh, big decision, sign off, sign off. So this was slowing things down. And he would say this idea of, well, how do I help others win? How do I help get the decision making and the authority to the people closest to the problems? And my role is to provide, as you say, direction, block and tackle. And, you know, challenge the team, of course, to improve, but, you know, your job is not to be at every standup and tell and sign off every user story, you know, and I think it's a profound sort of moment, I think, when your leadership team then start to see the values and the principles come to life, because I think that resonates a lot with the exec team. Like they think about looking for outcomes, seeing people uh, taking steps to get there, reporting positive and negative learnings from them, what, what you're going to do differently. Like, that's what gives executives confidence that you're doing good work. They see the critical thinking, deliberate approaches. And I think that like trying to help elevate to that type of guidance to help them be successful about how they need, need to change, I think is really important too. You talked about you know, you, some of the other things then you're starting to implement it, you know, as you look, reflect back on things. What, what other come to mind?
0: The journey around agility has been very interesting in that there was a lot of tension around even the term agile. What does agile mean? Is it agile project management? Is the state of being agile? What is it? And there was a lot of pressure to say, okay, what is the one way? that we're gonna be agile, so we remove complexity. Complexity means there's all these different definitions around and there's all these different ways that it's manifesting. And so there was a lot of pressure on that. And I would keep saying, well, there isn't only one way to be agile. That's inherently not agile expecting that, right? (laughs) Because the state of being agile is actually pivoting and adjusting for what you need at that moment, at that time based upon what you've learned, what information you've gathered, what you've learned from testing and making it just one flavor that we use is a challenge. And I get that we need, yeah, we need process and organization and, and that's very important, but it's more the underpinning of the mindsets. If you get the mindsets of what we're going for, whatever agile process you're using, whether it's Scrum or responsive working or other methods... It doesn't matter because those mindsets are inherent throughout all of those different kind of processes and methodologies.
1: Yeah, it resonates so much, right? Because I see this in big corporate, like everywhere, because the simple thing, we need one method so we can roll it out to hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. And, and there's this belief that if it's standardized, then it will be successful. And I think that's why we end up with these like massive, like scaling frameworks, like safe framework, right? It's just like copy and paste an organizational model and practices onto anything. And magically, everyone's going to start having higher performance. And I think you've experienced for yourself, right? Like giving the teams the mindset and the ability to adapt to the context, the problems they're facing. So they actually get good at problem solving, smaller steps, learning what works and what doesn't. It's a more difficult path to begin with because you're committing to challenging people on their behavior and really thinking about their mindset. The easy thing is to roll out a tick box transformation program where everybody attends the training. They'd sit in the class for two days. They get their certificate and they get their badge and they go back and sit at their desk and nothing changes. But hey, you know we've built these amazing transformational change program. And loads of people are really busy changing their title from business analyst to product manager or project manager to product developer. Or, but none of the behaviors and the values are changing. They so, haven't done
0: it. And they really haven't done it. And that, you know, one of our big learnings earlier on in the programming was you know, you watched a series of 10 videos. We had an online learning program. We had an in-person, but we had this online learning series of videos you would watch. And, and you'd take a quick test at the end, kind of a softball test. And then yeah. you got this certificate that said, you're a certified coach now, right? And, and what we realized is they weren't a coach of anything at that point, right? And we had to adjust and pivot that. You no know, no certified practitioner, let's call them a practitioner and say, okay, they're in learning. And the gap that we filled after that was we started these biweekly practice sessions. We literally just spent 45 minutes, live session, anybody from all over the world could come and they did, which was really cool. And we just had this hodgepodge of people that would come from all over the walks of life of the company because they just want to work differently and they wanted to be the catalyst for their teams but recognized watching a video was not enough. And so we created these kind of safe environments for people to come practice. And it's literally what we do, we just practice a method, whether it was a team retrospective or rounds or, or some of the other methods that we use. And that's what started solidifying the change for them. It wasn't watching the videos, it was the doing. And, and creating the bridge to give them the confidence to go back to their teams and practice, right? So you still needed this step in between because it just didn't have the confidence level, just immediately go back to their teams and start trying some of the stuff. So it really helped solidify the learning and enable them to go back and then start bringing everybody else along it. And we didn't want everybody going through training either. So like we would say, no, identify a champion or a coach. Don't force everybody to go through training because if they're not passionate about it or They're kind of pessimistic about it. It's not really going to go anywhere. It won't be valuable use of their time. A champion can bring them along a lot more quickly if you give that champion the license to take the team through it. So really cool stuff that we were able to do and and make an impact. And we took thousands of people through those sessions, in-person deeper sessions. But the practice sessions, I think, are probably the most impactful thing that we did to bring
1: them along. It's fantastic to hear. I think this learning by doing, even as you were sort of alluding to with your own career, right? Like trying like different disciplines out, right? Trying these new methods out, you know, like you, fair enough, training gives you information, but it doesn't give you experience. You know, you don't burn your fingers or you don't realize, uh, how, you know, how the tool works until you start actually trying to use it in, in a meaningful way. And I think that it's so important that you're describing, like creating these safe spaces where people can practice. Obviously, first time they're going to struggle, they're going to fail, they're going to make mistakes. But if everybody is sort of there in the beginning and that's the expectation set, like that encourages people to try, right? To learn and then potentially bring it back. But that other point is well, you keep that is something that I, I actually use it as a filtering mechanism when I'm working with people as you know, is how committed are these people? I think finding the fit, the people who are like, this is something I believe in. This is the way I want to work. I always think when you have the values and the beliefs like aligned, you, know, you can go anywhere. And if those people are, they're curious, they're committed, they know that the path means they're going to stumble, but they still are in. I think that's, to focus the energy, like those people will transform your company or the champions as you call them. I think trying to pour all your energy into people who are initially at least anyway reticent, that just burns energy and enthusiasm. Another lady we had on the show was Amy Jo Kim and she's actually a game designer. And one of the things she would talk about when they're designing games is they always look for like this sort of beachhead, this early set of sort of people who like really love a certain type of game. And they bring those people into the platform first because they can learn a bunch from them. Those people are comfortable that things are a little wobbly and not everything's perfect because they know they're sort of like one of the first to go. But they learn so much from that group as they start to scale these things out. Like she's built games like Rock Brand, and she's built games to get Netflix for people to like help the personalization algorithm. And, it's the same pattern again and again. It's like finding that truly committed, you know, people that their values, their beliefs, they're, they're inspired to do this work. They want to create change. And they know that that journey means tripping, falling, learning by doing and experiences. So I think that's a really profound design choice you're making with these programs. And I think it's really important for people to hear. It's um, the first
0: follower concept, right? Like the first follower, Who's going to get out there and be willing to be potentially embarrassed or whatever? It doesn't care. And the other thing, it's a huge time saving, right? So that first follower or that champion, who is going to make the extra time investment and go deeper on things, right? When they try to pull a group into an exercise or facilitate a discussion or, or, you know, do something that helps them make a decision, that person because they've taken the time to go a lot deeper, can explain the process probably in two minutes and go, here are the rules, here's how we're going to do this, play along, and let's move forward, right? That's a lot quicker to get into practicing for the rest of the people in that room than if you sent them to watch even a 20-minute video or whatever, a training video. So the power of that and how many more people you can reach in a quick and kind of painless way is huge when... Time is so precious for people now. And we have so much information that's being thrown at us. So many different things we can learn. And the tyranny of choice or where does my attention go and what I want to learn today? And there's just so many options that that's just like the easiest pill for them to swallow. If you inject that champion and go, hey, this is how it's going to work. And let's go. Let's give it a try. And another piece we say play along, but we also say, and no judgment, right? Like we want to make it a, a psychologically safe environment and get people to feel more comfortable sharing what's in their minds, their experiences, their perspectives, uh, the impact that things are having on them. And we have to just, even when it's a knife through your heart, what you're hearing, you say, thank you. you know, I appreciate, thank you for sharing that. Make it safe, no judgment. We need all this information so that we can make the best decisions possible with whatever we're taking forward.
1: This is great. So I have to ask you now then, you've worked in these massive organizations, right? Like huge global entities where there's often bureaucracy involved, there's people's prestige, their their identity, their brand is often tied to the initiatives that they're working in. What were some of the sort of things you maybe saw in organizations of that size and scale that can hold them back from like taking these risks on from, you know, not getting perfect results? You know, like there's such a a high expectation, high bar, very, very smart, very competent people that get the job done in the face of adversity, you know, like, or they're always correct. You know, I think one of the things I always find with we're learning are our desire to always be correct actually can really hurt us sometimes when we're doing like um, certainty, ambiguity work. What are some of your reflections, you know, having been in the like massive companies, what sort of stands out to you as one of those challenges?
0: It's just making things safe to try, right? If you look at what happened with COVID crisis and how quickly all these companies across the globe reacted and pivoted very, very quickly. You know, I like to call it, they had fuel injected purpose, right? There was not only for their business, but it was for caring for their employees or their consumers. And that fuel injected purpose was so impactful. And, and I kept thinking, like, how do we bottle that and keep that? Even when this crisis goes away, hopefully, do we keep that fuel-injected purpose because it was off the charts for a lot of companies. And that's what we need to keep. We need to... I think it also starts with the culture and the values that you set. And you have to dial down risk adversity. You have to... Dial up our ability to listen, make it so that people can voice their opinions and share their experiences in a way that they get heard. And I always say, not everybody's opinion has equal value, right? But I always say there's a, an equality that's needed to hear all of it. I'm not saying that we need all of the information we possibly can to make those great decisions that we need to do. And if someone is not sharing a piece of information, because they're scared to, or they're worried what people will think, or they're worried that someone just won't even listen. That's information lost for us. Right. And there's great ways now that we can listen, quote unquote, listen without it being a huge time consuming effort. We have great ways that we can listen through surveying techniques or listening techniques, you know, uh, facilitation techniques that we can gather those voices that we can have. But the culture around listening the culture around you know how do we reduce risk and people's ability to actually try things how do we make things safe to try because we witness we know we can do it right because we saw it in the covid crisis we know that we can make decisions more quickly we know that we can try things that would have taken us months and months and months to align around and we can do those things very quickly so it's getting kind of getting out of our own way and saying okay let's try this and see what happens Right? And of course, everything I talk about is I'm not talking about when I get concerned safety or anything like that. I, everything I'm talking about is like, you know, shifting a process or method or there's a great story where they, they started interviewing. You know, we had a massive ramp up of hiring during this crisis and they started interviewing people outside. They set up tables outside to interview people. That's great. That's terrific. And that was probably painless. Right. To do that. That wasn't a huge shift. But we probably never would have ever considered doing something like that.
1: What you're reminding me of as well is definitely one of the things that really struck me about what the COVID crisis also created, especially for leaders, is it was okay for them to say, I don't know the answer here. I don't know how to do this. And I think sometimes, especially senior executive level, like you have to have an answer for everything. Maybe there's this compulsion to feel like you have to have an answer. And I think one of the things that was, that really struck me. And I wrote about this in Tesco's bank case study I, I published with Jana Werner, where one of their big insights was that it gave the execs agency to say, We don't know. Can you help us? Or you might know you're closer to it. What do you think we should do? Or just like your hiring example, we need to hire people. How do we do that? Well, let, let's just set up stalls outside and make it safe that people can be distanced and we'll talk to people and hire them. Like the answers are there. And I think sometimes so much stuff gets in the way. Like the processes we design to make things work often get in the way because they're reliant on one or two people signing things off for mm-hmm. one or two people having to come up with the ideas instead of, you know, hundreds of people on your front line who are living and feeling the pain every day, who know what the problems are and can often come up with very simple, but very effective solutions as, as you're sharing with just Interviewing people outside. Let's go. Let's do it. You know, let's this is what we need. The
0: team for a lot of things, not everything, but the team for a lot of things should be deciding amongst themselves how they best want to get the work done. Right. Especially in a large organization, we want to come with this standard template, okay. This is how our meetings will work, or this is how the teams will operate. And the reality is every team is going to be different. It's going to have different needs. You're going to have different Situations per individual employee on the team. And those teams will decide best how they will be successful together. And that's something we have to let go of. The what has to be crystal clear, right? The mission, if they're anchored in their mission, how they will achieve that is going to be probably the best decided by them from a capability perspective and also from a team dynamic perspective right? If you're bringing the right capabilities to the team, the team dynamic, let them figure it out because they're going to be the best experts in knowing what it will take, right?
1: I love it. So for you then, you know, like looking forward now, right? Like you've done all these different pivots in your work, your companies, all these sorts of different domains and programs you've worked on. What are some of the things you're sort of most excited about looking ahead and what's lighting you up at the moment
0: oh goodness what's interesting to me right now is a little bit of not knowing what's ahead because it's always served me well in the past not being too planned out and i'm looking for my next great learning experience i've worked in two companies my entire career and so i'm really starting to think a bit differently about the next you know model for my career, right? Do I go to a smaller company? Do I do something that feels a bit more risky for me? There's just so many different opportunities and I'm so grateful and thankful for the experiences I've had leading up to this that has brought me to this point, right? I've gotten to work with some of the smartest and best people on the planet and had amazing mentors and people who I've gotten to learn from I always said that about Pepsi, that it's kind of like skiing. If you know how to snow ski, you don't become a better skier by skiing with a person that skis the same ability as you. You become a better skier by skiing with people better than you, because those people are going to take you down the harder trails, right? And it's kind of like that at Pepsi and just always looking around going, wow, that's so cool what they just did. And it's a very an inspiring experience to be surrounded by people like that. And you can do nothing but learn being surrounded by people like that. So I'm so grateful and always looking for something like that again, right? Where I can be inspired by the people around me and do really cool things. And, and I don't know what that cool thing is. There's so much opportunity now, even now versus when I was last, you know, in the job market 15 years ago, it's the landscape has changed. So much. I don't even think we had LinkedIn back then. You know, (laughs) like it's just so different now, but that's okay. That's exciting and meeting new people. It's going to be wherever the path winds me to in this next go.
1: I think that shines through just your mindset and your approach to whether it's work, whether it's life, whether it's, you know, new experiences. You know, I think it's inspiring to actually hear people talk like that. You know, I think. One of the things that's always stood out to me, especially when I've, you know, been spending time with leaders like yourself or really talented people, is they're always looking to grow. Like there's never an ending moment. There's never this sort of it's always interesting, like what's the next thing? Or um, I've never tried that before. I should give it a go. Or like I love your idea of like this idea of practicing with people that are going to take you on more difficult paths. Like, you know, that's taking us outside our comfort zone. And I don't think I hear enough people say that. I know we've a lot of pressure. A lot of things happen to, uh, you know, where we're constantly, things are drawing our attention, but actively designing opportunities to get outside your comfort zone and learn new skills with people who are are talented in that area. That it's such a great mechanism for me. In the last company I worked in, that was one of my favorite things about it. I just, I had amazing technologists that were like, Designing the future of what, I don't know, microservices architectures would look like. And, you know, I'm never going to wake up and dream about a microservice architecture, but I'd sit down beside them at the desk and they'd start explaining to me. And it would be fascinating because I'd get smarter. That's what kept happening. Right. And, you know, I just think there's such unique experiences uh, to be surrounded by people that are passionate about very specific domains that maybe you'll never have the same passion, but you can learn a huge amount from them. Right. And, and you grow in different ways. And I think it's great to hear you continuously still cultivating these behaviors in yourself is always inspiring. So maybe the last question I might ask you then is if you were going to give it a bit of advice then to a business leader who might be struggling with the concept of learning, unlearning, relearning, putting yourself out there, you know, what would be your sort of piece of advice for them?
0: We use this term, play along, when we would teach people these new kind of methods. And I think that's a great way to sum it up and phrase it along. It might not go perfectly, right, each time, but we're going to learn something by trying, right? So I feel like this idea of play along and let's see what happens is a great way. And we don't take ourselves as seriously about it. And don't let failure moments live on in an associate's shadow, right? We have to make it safe to fail small and often. And if we're leveraging more flexibility, if we're working in the open, if we are doing regular reviews of the work and working in the open using, you know, this collaborative great technology that we have now, big failures should totally be minimized at this point. But we should be acknowledging the small failure and learning from it. Let go of those failure moments. The big failure, it shouldn't have gotten to that, right? Like, is the way I look at it. If you really are working in the open. So really just try and keep this play along mentality as much as you possibly can. And keep things small, right? Because small failure is only small. So that's my advice. And listen, be great listeners. Always listen as much as you can. I'm not the first person to say that. I know for sure, but it's hard, well, right? It's- well,
1: look, it's been absolutely fantastic listening to your stories. And thank you very much for sharing them with us. You know, I think as people are listening to this show, it's the first show of the year. There's so much energy and positivity from even your approach to how you're sort of tackling what you're going to do next, and what you're hoping to do or opportunities you're hoping to create. I'm pretty sure people will listen to the show and they'll all be chasing you to try and come and work with them. So thank you very much, Annette. It's been, honestly, it's been a pleasure working with you and your team as well. They're an inspiring group of people and I look forward to see what you get up to next.
0: Thank you so much, Barry. And thanking you for helping me unlearn, right? Helping me even unlearn or learn about the topic of unlearning and sharing that with others. So you've been a great partner in some of the work that we've been able to do. And I appreciate just coming here and and having a great chat with you about all this stuff that I'm tremendously passionate about.
1: Nice one. All right. Take care. Thank you.
0: Thank you.